Judges chapter 10 this morning. For those keeping track, uh, we should be Judges chapter 9. I'm going to give you a brief overview of Judges 9. I think you should go read it for yourself. But for sake of time, for sake of not trying to get 52 sermons out of the book of Judges, uh, I'm just going to give you the overview. Okay? Uh, I actually thought when I started preparing for this week, I actually was like, hey, last week I feel like was kind of, I don't know the right word, uh, heavy, hard, difficult at times with Gideon and this, this arc of Gideon of his life and then leading Israel into idolatry and all the things that we talked about there at the end of last week. Uh, so I was like, this week's going to be a little bit, maybe more of a mental break. Uh, and then Judges 9 is Abimelech, we'll talk about him. And then we get to Judges 10, there's only two judges, they go by pretty quick. I was like, here comes the mental break. And then the end of Judges 10, I felt like kind of wrecked that whole idea of a mental break. So you get a mental break for the first half of this message, maybe, is what I'm saying. Uh, but Judges 6, 7, and 8 is the story of Gideon, right? And, and we, I've already mentioned it, but here's this arc of Gideon's life. Like he's a nobody from a nobody tribe, a nobody family. God calls him. And, and so here's this beautiful arc of, or this beautiful God story of, of raising up Gideon and 300 men and all these things that he does there. And, and then we get to chapter 7 and 8 and Gideon's fall. And, and it seems like 6, 7, and 8 would be the end of Gideon, and that's his story. Chapter 8 says he died. Okay, chapter 9, though, is the story of his son. And, and we've gone over this all the way back to Judges chapter 2. Like, the, the parents didn't teach their kids. Uh, the, the, that generation died, and the next generation knew nothing about God. Okay, so, so Gideon uh, isn't just his life, but at some level, it's also what he taught his sons. Okay, so, so briefly... Here's Judges 9. I'm not making it up. Go, go home and study it. It sounds more like a movie than a Bible story, though. Abimelech, the son, he is the son uh, from one of the concubines. He goes to Shechem, where his mom is from, and he says to Shechem, hey, you know what's a really bad idea? To have 70 sons of Gideon rule over you. You know what's a really good idea? To only have one of his sons rule over you. And there's only one son who's from Shechem, and that's me. So Shechem's like, Abimelech, great idea. Why don't you become this king who will rule over us? Abimelech's first order of business, to kill all his brothers. Seventy sons killed, except for one. The youngest, his name's Jotham. Jotham comes out, and, and here's this uh, 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 ceremony, if you will, of, of Abimelech becoming king, and Jotham stands on a mountain, and he cries out from the mountain that you've done evil, this is wicked. Abimelech, you, uh, your destruction is going to come from Shechem, and Shechem, your destruction is going to come from Abimelech. Like, you're both going to turn on each other. Okay, fast forward a couple years, Abimelech's king, all these things. Uh, he starts invading cities and towns and all these different things that he's doing. Uh, there is the curse that, that Jotham pronounces comes to be true. Anyway, he goes to the city. Here's Abimelech. He goes to the city, and in this city, he conquers it all. There's thousands of people killed. He goes to the next city, and they have a strong tower in the middle of their city, and he goes to conquer the strong tower, and there's a woman at the top of this tower as, as Abimelech tries to get in. And what does she do? She drops a millstone from the top of the tower. And it lands on Abimelech's head. He's not dead, but he knows he's going to die. He looks at his armor bearer and he says, I don't want to be known as the guy who was killed by a woman, so please kill me. Like, you finish me off so the story can be written differently. Okay, like, that's Judges 9. And some of you are like, why in the world did we just skip that one? Okay, cool. Good story. But I, I want us to at least take, I want us two takeaways. Okay, and I want us to just be able to recognize this. And I want us to know that story as we continue to move forward. 
Okay, story, uh, takeaway one from the story. Six, seven, and eight of Judges, there's an enemy. The enemy is outside of Israel, Midian. God can deliver his people from the, that enemy. Judges 9, there's an enemy, the son of Gideon. Someone who would rise up from inside of Israel, if you want to say it that way. And God is still able to deliver from that enemy. Right? So, there, so there's this idea of like, it doesn't matter where the enemy comes from. It doesn't matter what's going on. Like God's able to handle it. Like I feel like that's part of the story in Judges 9. Like you want, to, you want to rise up the strong army of Midian? God's got you with 300 men. In fact, he didn't even need those men. Right? You want, to, you want to try and overthrow Israel? You want to try and ruin God's people from within? God's got you. Like, no matter how you try to do this, God said, these are my people. I'm going to be faithful to them. I can deliver them. Abimelech doesn't win in the end. Okay? Second takeaway, and, and this is, I, I told my small group that sometimes I feel like preaching judges sitting down. Not because I feel like it would make me cooler, but I feel like there's this like authoritative stance of me standing. And then there's times where I read things and it's like, okay, here's that struggle. Here's that let's think through, like discussion groups coming. Uh, and sometimes I wish I could sit down. This is one of those moments where I wish I could sit down. A uh, couple different commentators, right? We've, we've already read a story back, Deborah, Sisera, woman in the tent, right? We've already read a story of, of a guy, an enemy of God, getting his head crushed. And we said, here's a woman who crushed the head of an enemy. Does that not at least a little bit sound familiar to Genesis 3? That the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Right? At least at some level. So is that the fulfillment of it? No, of course it wasn't the fulfillment of it. Jesus was the fulfillment of it. But maybe at some level, there's this idea of like, hey, God's not done with his promise in Genesis 3. Okay? Here, different commentators, they take it to be more like this. Abimelech. Son of Gideon, someone from within Israel, your life looked a lot more like the snake. Like this reminds us of Genesis 3, but who is the one that looked like the snake? It wasn't an enemy from outside of God's people, it was this enemy from within God's people. So there's different commentators who would kind of land on this idea of, of like guard your heart just because you're God's people, just because you're in the church, just because you're part of Israel, like however you want to define that, doesn't mean that you don't sometimes act like a snake. Right? Just, because, just because you grew up in church doesn't mean that, that you don't give your life to a certain way that actually is totally against God and his people. Like In this story, here's a woman crushing the head of the enemy. The enemy in Genesis 3 is the snake. They would make this connection that Abimelech seems to be acting, I can take away the word seems, Abimelech is acting more like the devil than he is a child of God, than, than someone who's in the people of God. So what do we do? We guard our heart. It's not just enemies outside that can ruin God's people, it's, there's enemies from within. When they act more like the devil, when they act more like the snake. Okay? Uh, I mean, we struggle, right? We can wrestle with that one. Judges chapter 10, though. This is where we're going to park. We got two judges in chapter 10. We go to Judges 11 next week with this Jephthah. Just, spoiler alert, I'm not looking forward to that one. Um, that one's, we're struggling through Judges at times, right? In a good way. That's going to be a big struggle. Uh, and then we got a couple more smaller judges, and then we get Samson, right? So, so I know we got 10 more chapters or so to go, but we're actually almost done with Judges. Here we go, Judges chapter 10. Now, after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. After him, 
Jair, the Gileadite, arose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havav Jair, or the towns of Jair to this day. And Jair died, and he was buried in Kaman. Okay, that's it. Right? Two judges. What was that? Three, five verses. Okay, so, so here's my takeaway from studying and just different things. Again, I'm not, this is not in the text. So this is just my speculation, my study, what other people have said, kind of put all that together. Here's what I feel like. I feel like these five verses is, is that maybe the story of Gideon and his rise and fall into idolatry, uh, maybe even more so the story of Abimelech. Like, what did people want? They wanted a ruler. They said, Gideon, rule over us. What do you want? You want a ruler? What did you get? You got a ruler, and his name was Abimelech, and he was horrible. Like, you got what you asked for. That's how God punished you in that instance. He gave you what you wanted, you could say, and, and it was so bad that it almost seems like, and again, maybe there's more to this story than recorded in Judges, but it almost seems like from what was given to us that Israel maybe somehow, somewhat learned a lesson. Story of Deborah, she already seemed to be judging. It wasn't that they were in captivity and then God raised up Deborah. Like the story of Deborah reads that maybe she was already judging. Maybe for Tola and Jair, maybe there's something similar to that. I mean, it does say that Tola saved Israel. Right? Uh, he judged them. Uh, okay, but, but there's some level that, that okay, so, but maybe they learned their lesson. Maybe there was something, uh, they didn't perfectly follow God. We would see that in verse 4. Here's a judge with 30 sons, most likely from multiple marriages. Right? So we're not going to say they perfectly followed God. We're not going to say they obeyed the law completely. But, but there's maybe this idea that, that for this, what is it, 55 years, put them together, uh, we did all right. Israel kind of learned a lesson. Okay? That's, that's what different people have taken away. Maybe not. Maybe it's just really bad and, and the author of Judges got tired of writing really bad stories. Probably not that, though. Okay? So, so we're going to, maybe we can assume that for that period of time, 23 years, and then again for 22 years, so 45 years, uh, we, can, we can maybe say Israel at least didn't go full-out pagan worship. That at least they, they stayed close to God at some level. Maybe. Okay, here's what we do know, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, let's just, I'm, I'm, we're going to read about it in just a second, but just pause. Up until this point, I feel like the word evil has been more for our interpretation than actually laid out what they've done. Okay, let me, let me explain. Uh, they've done evil, and then it's like, what was the evil in that day? A lot of times from the couple of guys that we were told, it's child sacrifice and there's immorality. Those are two very common, like, go-to type of, okay? So we, we kind of landed there, right? Okay, that's cool. But I feel like at, at some level, it's been like if, you, if you're married and your spouse is at work or running errands or whatever, and they come home, and what do you do when they come home is you say something like, hey, how was your day? And the person says, oh, it was a bad day. Okay, bad can mean what? It can mean Starbucks ruined my order. They put one too many pumps of vanilla in my ice, whatever, whatever, right? Like, okay, that, for some people, they're like, man, that was a bad day. Or it could be a lot worse than that. I feel like up until this point in Judges, the author kind of hints at more than just a bad Starbucks order, but, but like they just said they did evil. They did evil. Okay, I feel like Judges 10, uh, the curtain's getting pulled back. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and, and let's just walk through what this looked like. They served the Baals, we know that one, and the Ashroth, we know that one, and now here's some more. The gods of Armon, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammonon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
Okay, so, so here's, here's the picture, right? The spouse walks into the house. How's your day? It was a bad day. You don't leave it there because you're a good spouse. And you're like, oh, babe, honey, sweetie, whatever your term of endearment is, you throw that in there and you say, tell me about it. And like, well, I went to the dentist because that's the worst way to start a day. I went to the dentist. They pulled the wrong tooth. Like, that's how the day started. Then the numbing agent wore off on the right tooth. Then I got in a car accident. Then, like, then all of a sudden, it's like, that wasn't a bad day. That was the worst day ever. Okay? The author of, of Judges is telling us they did evil. But it wasn't just that they messed up. Like, this is, in essence, the worst day ever. Like, you have gone to, to Baals and to Ashros and this God and that God and the God of this. Like, you've gone to literally, seemingly, every God you know of except for the one true God. Like, we're 45 years removed from Gideon overthrowing Midian. Like, that's all it took. All it took was 45 years or so for you to be like, all right, God, we're done. It's so interesting to me that Gideon in Judges 6 pretty much blames God. Like, why has God abandoned us? Like, like if God, where's the story of Exodus? Like, why is this not happening in our day? Why are we in, in being oppressed? Why are we doing, like, like where's God in all this? And then you read this story, it's like, Gideon, you guys, you didn't get it. Like, Israel, you haven't got it. It's not that God abandoned you. It's that you've been abandoning God over and over and over again. All right, so nothing new here in verse 6, except for more, maybe more information. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Okay, just a little bit of irony here. Whose gods were they serving? Were they not serving the gods of the Philistines? Were they not serving the gods of the sons of Ammon? Who, who now are they being oppressed by? Who now are they going to be afflicted by? By the Philistines and, and the sons of Ammon. Like a little bit of irony, I feel like, from God to be like, hey, those gods that you, that you want to worship? Yeah, see how, see how they deliver you now. See, see how they help in this situation. Verse 8. They, this would be Philistines, sons of Ammon, they afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years, they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead and the land of the Amorites. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. Okay, we haven't talked a lot about geography. I'm just going to briefly talk a little bit more now. I feel like, and, and we can go back and, and work through this, but I feel like up until now in the book of Judges, it's a lot of times a city or a tribe. Right? I feel like uh, Ehud right? and, and the, the well-fed king, like, I feel like that was, that was more of like this little district, this little area, this one city. Like, okay, we read this story, and it's like, here's Judah, here's Benjamin, here's the house of Ephraim, here's those who are on the other side of the Jordan. Like, all of a sudden, it seems to me that the area's gotten bigger. Right? So as, as the story of Judges continues to grow, it's this, here's punishment, and the punishment or uh, judgment or whatever would be in this area, maybe this tribe, maybe this section. And to me, it seems like Judges 10, it's like we just made that bigger. The sin of Israel, the sin of these people is growing. Uh, the, the, the oppression is growing. Like things are just getting worse and worse. Verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, okay, let's just pause for a second. We've heard this before too, right? So, so we've heard they've done evil and Judges 10 then fills us in on some of the more of the evil they've done, okay? Verse 10, we've heard this before. Israel cries out to the Lord and here's been our struggle in the midst of Judges is that word cried has no, I, no intention, no uh, sort of influence of this word repentance or even admission of wrong. 
Like, like we want the word cry to be like cried and repent. But that doesn't, the word the Hebrew word doesn't mean that. It literally just means cries out for help. So for however many times in the book of Judges, they've cried for help, and we've sat in discussion group and been like, why is there no repentance? Okay, now we're in Judges 10. They cried out to the Lord. Sounds familiar. What'd they say this time? It says, we have sinned against you. Like for the first time, maybe they did it before, but for the first time recorded in the book of Judges, it's no longer we just cried out for help. It's we cried out for help, and then we admitted our guilt. This is not Gideon in Gideon 6 saying our God abandoned us. Look at what it says. This is, this is a totally different thought. Like we're crying out for help. Why? Because we have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Okay, the, here's, here's what's going to be hard. You read through this story, for me at least, and Judges 10, as horrible as this is, as horrible as Bimlech is in, in chapter 9, as horrible as Judges, like verse 10 to me seems to be some sort of like, man, they got it. Like it took them this long, and it took this many judges, and it took this, like, but, but for the first time, it's like our sin, we've forsaken you. It's not that God's forsaken us, it's we've forsaken him. We serve the Baals. We left the one true God to go serve false gods. Like in my mind, verse 10 is like this, like, finally. Then we keep reading, though. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, who now are oppressing you, and the Philistines, who are now again also oppressing you, also from the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Mayanites, oppressed you, you cried out to me, I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Here it is, verse 13, Therefore I will no longer deliver you. Like I go from verse 10 thinking like, finally they get it, and God says in verse 13, No, I'm done. And as much as I was like, man, this is going to be a nice, like, kind of in between the judges. Like, we have two little, like, this is going to be an easy week. Now, all of a sudden, it's like we get dropped this truth bomb. That God says, no. Doesn't matter what you say right now. Doesn't matter what's going on. Like, you have sinned. You've forsaken me. Like, I'm done. I will no longer deliver you. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Right? You want, you want to forsake God? You, you want to choose another God? God's like, great, go, go keep going. See, see what the gods of the Philistines will do. See what the Baals will do. See what the Astros Like, go serve those gods. Continue in your sin. And for us, like, like this isn't God. Like, if I could say that respectfully. Like, this is not our view of God. Like, we don't serve a God, seemingly, that would ever say, all right, enough's enough, that's it, I'm done. Yet now we're in the middle of Judges 10, seemingly after a great confession from the people of Israel, and God says, no, I'm done delivering you. Verse 15. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. I'm going to be real nitpicky. And, and I Probably shouldn't because I would hate for somebody to be this nitpicky about me. But, but we, look at this, we look at the text, verse 15. Israel says what? We have sin. They acknowledge their sin. Good with that. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Like, God, you are in charge. You're the judge, ultimately. Like, you're the one who gets to decide. Like, we abandon you. We forsook you. God, we, we place ourselves in your hands. Okay. I think we're good with that. 
But then the way they end that verse. Only please deliver us this day. Like you forsook God, chose other gods, now you're coming back to him. I feel like, and again, maybe this is being too nitpicky. Maybe they're, they're relying on the promises of God that he would deliver his people. Okay, Maybe that's where they're landing. But I feel like, and, and my reading of this, that I feel like I want them to say, God, do whatever you want to us, whatever seems good, only don't forsake us. Like I want them to land somewhere where it's like, God, we just want you. And if that means we get you in captivity, then we get you in captivity. If that means we get you out of captivity, then we get you out of captivity. If that means we get you in good days, we get you in good days. If we get you in bad days, we get you in bad days. But no matter what it is, God, we just want you. And I feel like the people of Israel landed on, God, we just want deliverance. We talked about this last week in discussion group. How often, even in our culture today, we want the blessings of God without God. We want God's blessing to like bless our family. We don't want sickness. We don't want this. Like, he's the ultimate healer, and so we're going to trust him for that. And yet at the same time, we, we try to do enough to make him happy so he'll give us what we want without actually getting him. And I feel like, again, I might be being too nitpicky, okay? But I feel like that's what the people of Israel are saying. God, the God of the Philistines isn't going to deliver us. We're being oppressed and afflicted and crushed by the Philistines. Like, why would their God help us out right now? Like, like, they're looking at this thing like there's only one God that we know of that can help in this situation, and it's the God of the, God of the universe, and it's Yahweh. And so, I feel like there's this cry to God, do whatever you want, we're going to say whatever we need to say so that we can get God to do what we want him to do, which is to deliver us. And again, is that, like, forget our culture, is that not also us? Like, are we not also tempted to be like, man, if I say this thing or if I do this thing, maybe I hand out the most blessing bags uh, next month in December. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all 40 of them things. I'm going to pass them out and God's going to, like, and all of a sudden we just turn into some twisted thing about who God is. Like, somehow we can manipulate him or somehow we can change him or somehow we can make him bless us more. Like, he's given us himself. He's given us his son and somehow we're not happy with that. We'd rather have some material thing. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 16. So they, Israel, like story, it's, it's going well for Israel. Like I just, I just really was nitpicking on them, but verse 16 is good. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. Okay, thinking back through the book of Judges. This happened, right? Gideon, he walks outside, he tears on the altar to Baal. Everyone gets real mad at him. He gets called Jerubbabel now. Uh, but other than that, we don't really see a whole lot of like getting rid of foreign gods. They serve foreign gods. Now they serve God. But we've, we've missed the story of like, hey, they tore down the altars. We got one in Gideon. Now we got a second one. So as nitpicky as I am in verse 15, I feel like verse 16, like, no, you, you're doing the right thing. Israel, like, good for you. You took away the foreign gods from among them that you, and you started to serve the Lord. This idea of like, we're going to do what God has said. We're going to follow his law. We're going to follow his word. Okay, but here's the point. Here's where we're going to land. Here's, here's kind of the the heart of the story. End of verse 16. And he, God, could bear the misery of Israel no longer. So what is, what's the implication? The implication is he's going to do something. He's going to deliver. He's going to step into the story. But notice why he's going to step into the story. It's not because they turned. It's not because they said the right words. It's not because they did enough good works. It's not because of any of those reasons. 
Why does he step into the story coming up in chapter 11? Why does he do this? Because his heart, like who he is, he couldn't bear the misery of Israel any longer. I said I quote Dale Davis too much in this series. And I had another quote by another guy. And I loved it. And it was really good. And then I read Dale's commentary. And I took that quote out and I put Dale back in. I'm just going to keep going down Dale. One day we won't quote Dale uh, in the book of Judges. But that day is not today. Uh, Dale says this about this last part. He could bear Israel's suffering no longer. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Can I just say that again? Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Like, growing up, there's a whole... We got more of a quote than that. Like, Dale's coming more. Uh, but my growing up years, it was like, man, am I saved? I don't know. Did I mean it enough? Like, could I, did I, did I have enough emotion? Did I have, like, then there's this whole struggle of, like, did I say the right word? Did I say it the right way? Did, like, and there's all this struggle of, like, can I go before God because of this or that? Or did I do, okay. And, and Dale says from this text, let's take our eyes off of ourselves and let's put them on God. Like, our hope isn't that I said the right word in the right way. My hope is that there's a God, and he uses the word intensity. There's a God who has an intense Tense level of compassion. It is very difficult for us to imagine how much Israel's misery moves Yahweh. It is as if he cannot stand to see his people, even his sinful people, crushed. In all their afflictions, he is afflicted, referencing Isaiah 63, verse 9. That is why we have this seeming tension between judgment and grace in Scripture, a tension not merely in the text of Scripture, but in the character of Yahweh himself. For he is the God whose holiness demands he judge his people, yet whose heart moves him to spare his people. He could bear Israel's sufferings no longer. Many Christians, especially those with a lively sense of God's severity, but little of his kindness, should meditate on this text. You must see Yahweh's heart. And don't forget where he showed it to you. In the Old Testament. Over and over again, hopefully every week, there's this idea of what does this say about our God? And if I can say this as, as reverently as I can, like I'm talking about the God of the universe who's holy. Okay, I understand that. And so just reading the text and, and, and reading it as a human, I'm going to use words that I know aren't true about God, but it, if I can just say it this way. Judges 10, we get to the end of God's patience, seemingly, right? According to the text, like I know it's infinite. I know he's holy. I know he's perfect. I know there is no end to God's patience. And yet in Judges 10, it seems like from a human perspective, if, if God was a human, that, that here it is, we got to the end of his patience. He can endure this no longer. Israel, your sin is wretched and vile before me. I'm tired of it. Go to these other gods. And even in that moment when it seems like God has no more compassion, no more patience, no more mercy to give, we get verse 16. We get a God who sees the misery of his people and says, I'm going to step in and help. I'm going to step in and do something. And what a beautiful picture of who our God is. Like, it's not that Israel deserved this. It's not that Israel did enough good works. It's not that Israel somehow uh, good works outweighed their bad. Like, no, beginning of, ch of chapter 10, your, your bad works were real bad. Worst they ever type of day. Like over and over again, you blew it, you blew it, you blew it. And yet in the midst of that story, in the midst of that chapter, in the midst of what's going on here, God still has verse 16. 
Like, he still has a heart of compassion. His, his compassion doesn't dry up. His mercy didn't go away. We sing that song so often. His mercy is more. Like, it's not just more than my, my struggle. It's not just more than my, like, no, it's more than any sin you could ever commit. Like, like it's more mercy than the, one, than the sins that Israel did in this chapter. And all the chapters leading up to it. And here's a picture throughout the whole book of Judges. If, if you go, Google Judges and you Google um, sermon titles or sermon series through Judges, one, you don't find too many of them. Second, they, they all seem to say something about a downward spiral. The downward spiral of Israel. And I get it. Like, Israel's in a downward spiral. I get it. But what we find at every new level of the depth of Israel's spiral is that there's a God who loves. There's a God who's compassionate. There's a God who's merciful. There's a God who's still faithful to his people. And seemingly, the story of Judges is it doesn't matter how far down you go, there's still a God who's willing to rescue. And so I don't want us just to land that Israel made mistakes. Like, we duly noted, they made lots of them. But there is a God who, who reaches down and, 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 and comes to his people and rescues. And there's still compassion and mercy for his people. So this morning, may we uh, think, may we praise, may we worship, may we, may we go here this morning leaving with greater thoughts of our God. Like, God, this is who you are. And even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, no matter where we find Scripture, you are a God who is compassionate, who is faithful, who is loving, who is kind, who is willing and waiting to rescue which in my years growing up, whether taught or caught, that was not my view of God. My view of God was he was angry and ready to judge. And here's a, here's a story of a God who says, no, you, your misery has broken my heart. I can't bear it anymore. I'm going to come rescue. I'm going to come deliver. Let's pray this morning. Father, reading Judges 10 and, and just walking through the text, God, you are so different than us. Like, like I think sometimes, I mean, it's our pride, it's, it's bringing you down, but God, sometimes I feel like we're tempted to think that you're a lot like us. And yet in Judges 10, we see a God who's holy, who's completely holy, who can't stand sin, who can't, who can't stand uh, rebellion and false worship and idolatry and, and child sacrifice and all the things that Israel would have been a part of. Like, you can't, you can't stand that. You're holy. You hate sin much more than we ever would. And yet there's also compassion. There's, there's this God who is holy and there's this God who is love. And God, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around you, how you can be so holy and yet so loving. And so, God, we praise you this morning. We praise you that we can't totally grasp you. We praise you that you are not like us, that you are far greater than us. God, thank you for this story this morning. Thank you that you are a God who rescues his people, that you rescue them from Midian, you rescue them from Abimelech, you rescue them from themselves. But God, we so desperately, we individually, we as a church, we as a people, as a nation, we so desperately need a God who would come and rescue, a God who comes and intervenes, a God who sees us in our, our miserable state and doesn't just leave us there. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you are this God of Judges 10. We think that you are a God who loves. I pray that this wouldn't just be something we know intellectually, but I pray this would be something that would change our lives, that we would be excited and eager to tell others, other in this room or those outside of this room, those who know you, those who don't know you, that we'd be excited to tell others about the love of this God that we serve. 
We pray for our discussion group to come. We pray for wisdom. We pray that this would be a, another moment of iron sharpening iron. Uh, we pray there'd be another moment of just encouraging our souls to love you more. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.